with the sound of Rev Sam and Outcast, and Rev Sam himself is our guest today on the ABBA podcast. He's better known to some of you as Sammy Horner, and we'll be talking love, life, faith, music, and goodness knows what else. In just a moment. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the ABBA podcast with John McDonald. Thank you for tuning in. We really appreciate your support. John would love to hear from you. You can send comments and questions on Twitter at ABBA Podcast. You can also keep in touch through the Facebook page, The ABBA Podcast with John McDonald. Here's your host, John McDonald. Well, it's my great pleasure to welcome Sammy Horner to The ABBA Podcast. Hi, Sammy. Hello there. Sammy has been involved in music and so many other things. Sammy's been a teacher, he's been a kids worker, he's been a pastor. He's, for many, many years, he's a musician and songwriter, a bit of a raconteur. And now he's, he's authored his first book, and we'll, we'll be talking about that today as well. So how are you, Sammy? You know, I'm all right. We've just finished lockdown for the second time here in Ireland. Oh, my. So um, fortunately, um, we live in uh, the most majestic, beautiful part of the world. I mean, we live, the beach is at the bottom of my street, you know. Oh. Um, <laughs> and uh, making everyone which, jealous. Well, the Wexford coastline is, is actually amazing. My wife, as you know, is Australian, and she, she reckons the beaches here are as good as any Australian beaches. You know, it's incredible. Wow. And we've got forests in two kilometers away. So we, if you're going to be locked down, it's not a bad place to be yeah. locked down. You know, we haven't been able to see our family in a year, which has been a bit of a drag. And, um, of course, we haven't been able to tour. Um, which of course, is, that's that. I mean, like, that's the lifeblood of most musicians, isn't it? Touring, uh, getting your music out there maybe selling merchandise. How has that affected you and Kylie? Um, well, in a funny kind of way, um, we were planning not to be away as much this year before we ever knew about a pandemic. We had two tours planned and we had a number of Irish things planned to stay in the country, which of course all got wiped out. Oh. Um, but but we, had, um, we were on the road for 40 weeks last year. <laughs> And um, the other thing it did was give me a lot of creative time that I don't usually have. What, what's been the results of that creative um, hiatus? Well, um, I, had, um, I had two ideas in my head for a long time. One of them was called um, Reverend Sam and the Outcasts, which is like a big, hard rocking, punk, gospel, slightly rude... Um, <laughs> I don't know, but it's, it's like a gospel record with, with, I think, a lot of edge. And there was a second record I've been wanting to make for about 10 years as well about um, Irish immigration and the famine and so on. Wow. And so I managed, I managed to not only get to do that, but we, because we live in Ireland now, we managed to visit some of the famine sites. Yep. Is that, that's it? You've, done two, you've been off a year and you've, you've made two CDs? Um, well, the two CDs were done in the first lockdown, which was in March. And then um, I've been working on this book as well. I have a grandson called Finn. And uh, ever since Finn was born, I would buy a leather Celtic journal. And I used to write one of the stories of Finn McCool. And Finn McCool is a legendary Irish sort of giant of a man who built the Giant's Causeway. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and, you know, the Isle of Man was just a clod of dirt he threw it into the sea and all that stuff. And it's great stuff. And I did that up until he was seven. I just had the idea just to write a good story. 
so I would get myself up out of bed and, and um, walk to the beach. It was still dark in the morning, you know, walk to the beach and be quiet for an hour and then come back and start to write the story. So, so that book, that book started before lockdown. I mean, that probably was about, well, you've written books, you know what it's like, right? It's a process. Yeah. And so I think, um, yeah, I think two records and a book um, in um, about six months isn't bad. That's so. pretty good going. Yeah. Mm. So what was the book called again, Sammy? The book is called Finn and the Wild Goose. Do you have a copy there that we can see? I do. I have one. Here's one I prepared earlier. Awesome. Good artwork. The artwork is by Mary Fleeson from Lindisfarne, um, okay. from the Scriptorium. So is it just a kid's book or is it an all-age kind of thing? Well, loads of adults are buying it, actually. Um, it's, it is a kid's book. It's, I mean, it's a little bit scary at points, you know. It's, um, and some kids, a friend of mine was here the other day to buy four of them for her, her, her um, nieces and nephews. And she had a little nephew with her at seven. And he liked it, but he said it was a bit scary. And um, right. it is a bit. Um, kids but, um, eat that a little bit, though, don't they? Well, the great, the great fairy stories are scary, you know. I mean, it, it's not as scary as, like, Hansel and Gretel. We don't have any cannibalistic witches. <laughs> um, <laughs> but there are banshees and werewolves and leprechauns and all sorts. Oh, cool. So you brought in all the mythology and... Yeah. And the only, the only research I did was really in that mythology. I mean, I knew some of it because I grew up in Ireland. Um, but I, I did a bit of a serious research time before I wrote it. And I sketched out all the creatures and stuff myself. I showed my sketches to Mary Fleeson. And she says, yeah, they would terrify children. Don't, don't use those. <laughs> <laughs> and so the, the sketches in the book are by a young Sri Lankan art, artist called uh, Sanoji. And um, she's done like the, um, it's a silky. And, wow. and she'd done these beautiful these beautiful illustrations inside. Awesome. So, wow. um, so I did a fair bit of research into Irish mythology and I, I found things that I didn't know about. And uh, one of the great themes of the book is not everything is what it seems to be. So um, even if you are reading it to your kids, bits it seems scary as the book reveals more about these things. You'll yeah. find them um, surprisingly, they aren't always what they, they think they are. So. Wow. Um, how do people get a hold of it, Sammy? Well, you can get it anywhere. It's on Amazon. It's Amazon. on Book Depository. It's in Waterstones. It's in, great. You know, all, all the usual places. But if you just just hit an online search, you'll find it, and they'll deliver it. I mean, Book Depository and Amazon will deliver it right to the door. So, and what about the music? How do people get a hold of your music? Um, that's usually through Bandcamp or directly from us. That's <laughs> one of the problems with not touring is that that's where you that's where you present a lot of it. Um, so at the moment, it, it's really directly from us. But um, Bandcamp is a good way. If you download, that's an easy way to do it. It's easy. Great. Great. So you've been busy, isn't it? Aye, but it's been nice busy, you know. I mean, uh, often because we're touring, recording is usually done over a period of about six or eight weeks. And it's a fairly intense six or eight weeks. You know about that as well. Yeah. You've been in that world. So to record, to record 10 or 12 songs in six weeks, when you're doing a lot of it yourself, you know, is, mm. is hard enough. But these days, um, a lot of stuff's recorded over the internet. So I will record, you know, the, I'll record the rhythm tracks and a guide vocal and I'll send it off to 
Nashville to have drums played on it or Australia or, you know, UK. And then those folks will record their instruments and their students send it back. So you're fielding stuff at all times of the day. You know, you could be getting Australian stuff at, at five in the morning or you could be getting American stuff at, you know, midnight. It, and often people want to know if what they've done is okay so that they can redo it while it's all set up. Um, so it, it can be a bit intense and take a long time. I didn't, didn't have that problem this time. Good. It could take as long as I wanted. Um, and I, I really did try to more or less, you know, get up, go for a walk, have breakfast, and then have a sort of a nine to five job in the studio, mostly. Sure, on tour, we, we, you know, we might get a day or two off a week, maybe. But if you're in America for six weeks, every, every day you have off is a $300 day. Yeah. You know, hotel, petrol, and food is a $300 day. Yeah. So that could be what you earned the night before. So you can't have too many of those or you're in trouble. So you tend to just hammer it for yeah. the time you're right. And you, I mean, you must spend a lot of time on the road, actually, when you're touring, like, the States or Australia. Yeah. Just because yeah, of the I mean, vastness of, of the territory. Yeah, I mean, America could be 400-mile drives between gigs. Yeah. And you can be doing that for a week, you know, up in the morning drive, set up, play, sleep up in the morning, do it again. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I, it, it, it can be hard going. But, um, I, I mean, mostly I like it. But I think Kylie and I have both realized this year that we, I think we want to slow it down. It, you said that you, you grew up in Ireland, but that's not a Wexford accent. <laughs> no, Belfast, why? No, uh-huh. no, I grew up. Three hours north in Belfast, and um, yeah, when I was ten, it all um, it all went south up there, you know. So, so I my teenage years and early twenties were right through the seventies and the troubles, you know. Wow. It affects you in ways you don't you don't realize. I suppose when I was ten years old, my mother would move us a lot, and my mother moved us into a particular area, you know. Belfast is pretty pretty much divided into two sections, and um, we lived in one, and my mother moved us into the other. You know, <laughs> I know the reasons why she did. Now I didn't know when I was a kid, but um, I just went to high school, and our our school uniforms betrayed which which side of the track you belong to, and so I would get I would get beaten up every day going to school. You know, because of my uniform, and when I was just 11 years old, I had my first major nervous breakdown. Mm-hmm. Ended up in hospital. <clears throat> I was unconscious for about three days. Wow. Just complete complete shutdown. And um, my parents thought I was going to die. Um, then I came to, didn't know what had happened. And uh, they they um, misdiagnosed me. They thought I had epilepsy. So they put me on board bed shoots for the next five years, and, which, of course, I abused because... You're 11. Yep. <laughs> but was that just the, all the trauma, just getting in yeah. top of you, Sammy? Yeah. I had to go and live with my sister because I couldn't live with my parents' house anymore. And I think I was just really concerned and anxious. Yeah. yeah so so that something snapped and I just was, well, I was just out for three days. Wow. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, so that, that, was, that wasn't great. And then... Um, and then the situation in Belfast didn't get any better, of course. It just, just gradually got worse. So you were used to shootings and bombings and, you know, with family killed, with school friends murdered. I mean, all sorts of stuff happened yeah. in my, my teenage years. Wow. And uh, it was at the age of about 16, I think, um, 
because Ireland's a funny country. It's 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 definitely changed. I mean, and this part of the country is much different to where I grew up. But whether Protestant or Catholic, it was a very church-oriented country. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, even if you were a terrorist, you were probably still going to church and something. You know, I mean, it was it was that kind of place. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, it, it was just—it was just almost a cultural thing. You just did that. I mean, all your friends. Was yeah, it wasn't anything? like. Yeah, sorry. It wasn't like it was a big deal. Your all your friends did it as well, you know. And uh, so you just go into somewhere with your mates, and yeah. they told you stories about Jesus, and you got sweets, you know. I mean, it, it was. And I suppose I wouldn't—I um, wouldn't entirely discredit that. I don't think that's a terrible thing. Um. Because I think your parents probably sent you for the right reasons. They probably thought it was good for you. Um, but I'm not sure what went in, you know. I'm mm. not sure what, what I understood. I probably had a basic knowledge of Bible stories. You know? But um, as in terms, of, in terms of taking faith seriously, I don't know that I ever, I don't know that I ever knew I had to, really. You know yeah. I mean? I think you just thought church was just a thing you did and not a thing you were. Um, and uh, but at the age of 16 I met a, a young guy called Stephen Norwood I only met him because I really fancied his girlfriend actually <laughs> he ended up with my girlfriend which was excellent um, but he he was he was a he called himself a Christian and he was quite different than us we were a bunch of functions he used to steal everything and break everything I mean we weren't terrible kids we were just mischievous you know but we drank a lot as kids I mean it was well, you were living in a a war zone, yeah. So I guess, and I was getting free drugs. All my friends like me, I just passed them out. I mean, bizarrely, my parents never once questioned where all these Fina Barb's were going and stuff. You know, I just gave them my friends. <laughs> um, anyway, we went away camping down to a place called Helensburg by the beach. We used to go down there a lot, and we were part of a, a venture scout group. We'd go down to this place um, called Crawfordsburn. Um, which is a beautiful part of beautiful part of the county down, and uh, we camped there. We would steal everything, you know. We wouldn't even bring a tent. We'd steal a tent from the next campsite. We we spent all the money in booze, and we just got drunk and stole all our food from other campers. We we're real punks, you know. Um, Stephen was there, and he didn't do any of that stuff. He bought his food and brought his own place to sleep. And, and but he was a really nice guy, and he was a weird dude. He was just a really nice. We played guitar and stuff, and then. Uh, the short story is we stole a boat. We were all really drunk. We stole a boat, a rowing boat, and we got out, it drifted out into the ocean, and uh, we realized with no oars. <laughs> <laughs> so being, being a bright bunch, we we tore up the boards in the bottom of the boat, you know, the bit you walk on. It didn't it didn't put a hole in the boat. It just meant you were in the hull. You know? yeah, yeah. We tried to use these planks of the oars, which, of course, got wiped out of our hands in five seconds. And we found ourselves bobbing about, about six of us, I think. And we saw we saw flashlights coming down from the forest, people running down, and we knew we knew we were in trouble because anything that had happened in that little town, sleepy little seaside town, you know, but anything that had happened there that weekend, we'd done it, mm-hmm. and we thought that's it, we're done, you know. And the boat turned itself around and started heading for shore, uh-huh. like going to. Well, as we got close to shore, it was Stephen. There was a rope on the boat, and he hauled us in, saved us. Now, I don't know about the ethics of that. He probably should have let us get caught and told us. But he said he didn't want us to get in trouble. 
and he could have gotten in trouble if he'd have been caught, you know, he hadn't done anything. Mm-hmm. And there was something about that made me think yeah, I was different, you know. And so I, my prayer was something like, whatever it is he's got, that's what I want, you know. And that was it. It was a real turnaround for me. Yeah. And I, I literally did quit drinking and drugs. And I just stopped doing it. That was it. And um, a couple of weeks later, I bought my first bass guitar and learned how to play it and joined the band. And um, mm-hmm. a gospel, country gospel band, can you believe it? <laughs> Crystal River. <laughs> oh, please. Even buying a guitar in those days in Belfast was bizarre. You know, I woke up, I always wanted to play bass, and I I had saved up, I was earning 14 pounds a week as an apprentice electrician, and I'd saved up 28 pounds, which is two weeks wages, 29 pounds. And um, I decided to buy a bass and went up to the uh, music shop, which that morning, I got there about, you know, mid-afternoon, I think. But that morning it had been blown up by the IRA. <laughs> oh man. Well, I walked through the window of the shop and the guy was in there, you know, that owned it, just <laughs> looking at this burned out shop. And I said, Have you got a bass? And he just took this bass of a wall and gave it to me. And I said, Have you got a, a strap? And he gave me a strap and a, a lead. And I said, I've only got twenty nine pounds. He never said a word, just took a twenty nine pounds off me and I walked back out the window with his case bass. What was the first song you learned, Sammy, to play? Um, I probably, it was probably something like I Saw the Light by Hank Williams. I was listening to a lot of Hank Williams. My dad loved country music. That's a good tune. Oh, well, my dad loved the best country music. You know, he loved Patsy Cline and Tennessee Ernie Ford. And he loved Les Paul. He wasn't really a country singer. Les Paul made the Les Paul guitar. He made the first electric guitar. And Les Paul was an amazing guitar player. And him and his wife. Maria Ford, not Maria Ford, was her name? Something Ford. She, um, they used to play together. And um, I sat with my dad's old, you know, 78s, or 33s, 78s. And I sat with the needle and put it back to the start and played along. And mm-hmm. um, I had one lesson by from a guy. That's, <laughs> that's all I can tell you. My friend said to me, that guy can play bass. This guy, was, he was older than me, probably about 19 or 20. And he was playing football in the field. And I waited till he had finished and said, can you play bass? He said, I said, you want to show me? And he went up to my mom and dad's apartment with me and showed me how to tune it and showed me a few licks and that was it. And off I went. And I literally did learn by sitting on my bed, just lifting that needle and putting it back to start and figuring it out, you know. All through the 70s, I was listening to glam rock and all the rest of it, like everybody else, you know. And of course, punk bit happened. Of, bit of punk, I, all of that stuff. Um, but I suppose because it was playing country, it was playing on a country band, so you tend to listen to a lot of it. But mm. but I listened to all of it, um, and I still do. So so you're, you're playing bass and country gospel bands in, in Northern Ireland. Mm. How did you get to Scotland? What happened there? Well, when I was about 19 or 18, this old, I say she was an old woman. She was probably younger than we are now. But when you're, when you're 18, anybody over 40, you know. But she was a missionary. So I can't even remember where she was a missionary. Papua New Guinea or somewhere like that. But I remember thinking she was a really old. In my head, anyway, she seemed old. But she was on fire, you know. She was just full of life and her eyes were sparkling. And she was so excited about what she did. I mean, she totally inspired me. So I left that that meeting that she spoke at 
my pastor wasn't at the church that night. And I went straight to his house and I said, I want to be a missionary. And he says, well, <laughs> what brought this upon, you know? I said, that woman, it's amazing. You know, I want to be like that when I'm old. And, uh, and he gave me good advice. And for once in my life, I listened because I wasn't good at listening to pastoral advice usually, especially at that age. But he said, you know, finish your apprenticeship. He says, because having a trade would be a really good thing if you go to another country. And it was good advice, still good advice. And I did that, but like the day I finished my apprenticeship, I had my notice in and I'd applied to the Bible Training Institute in Glasgow to study theology. So that's how I ended up in Glasgow. I went, I went over there to study and never left. How did you see yourself as a missionary in Scotland? Or? Well, you got to remember, I mean, I left school as soon as I could because I hated school. So I didn't like have any levels or grades, nothing. I had nothing. The only, the only reason I got into the college was because I had technical exams because I had to go to tech when I was a, an electrician. But when I went to college, I had to do English O-level and REO-level. <laughs> I had to do them at college as well as my other work because oh, wow. you had to have them. Well, yeah, anyway. Um, but I found, that, um, I found that I liked college. I didn't like school at all. I hated school. I went to a terrible school, to be fair, but I hated school. But I, went, I found when I went to college, we were just treated more like an adult hmm. and you were left to get on with it, you know, and if you didn't do it, it was your it was your bad and i really liked it but all it really did was introduce you to things like arminianism calvinism yeah eschatology none of which were terribly useful i'd have to say i mean really they weren't terrible because i ended up working after i finished there i ended up becoming the youth worker in the east end of glasgow with street kids who i couldn't even understand let alone tell them about you know john calvin but what it did do was uh, taught me how to study. And, um, and so I kept studying. And then um, I don't, there was something I think going on at that time in Scotland. So there was a bunch of us, and you were probably one of them as well, but there was a bunch of us. There was Andy Kennedy, there was Bill Hogg, there was myself, there was Ricky Ross. He was in Dundee, of course. It was Ricky Ross, there was um, um, Ewan Vernal, you know, Tom Morton. And um, the Gowdies, were they not around at that time? Yeah, Brian McGlynn. You know, I said, there, was, there, was this, there was this sort of street level thing happening with youth workers and musicians. And so street level in Dundee began to happen. And that was the likes of Ricky and so on would do that. And then in Glasgow, me and Bill um, and Andy ran things like Impact Festival and, and then PowerPoint, which mm. became huge. I mean, yeah. was a month. And that was, I mean, kids couldn't get into that. It was so busy. I mean, I remember having Compolo and Smithy there and, and people not being able to get in. And Compolo and Smithy would go out at the interval and speak to the kids outside and do like three things because they couldn't. You know, you were talking about thousands of kids. It was amazing. And so, and, and it was kind of, it, it felt like, it felt like the stars had aligned, I suppose. I mean, although we didn't know that, we, we just thought, let's try this. Let's do that. You know, we're all young and, and, and full, of, full of sun. And, and um, before we knew it, with all these festivals and events, and, and then 
guys like Steve Chalk would come up and do brainstormers and we would all be the people who led those. And, and then within a few years, it was, you know, we were all being invited to the national events, Spring Harvest Greenbelt to speak and play. And, mm-hmm. and so, so for young, for young men at that point, there was all this, there was all these places that were great for output. Um, and I was up to the neck by the time I was 26 or 27, I was like on speed dial for all these events, you know, and it was never home. And I had young kids, and it's just never home. And, a, and as well as that, you, all of us had our own thing as well. You know what I mean? I mean, lots of us were youth workers for churches or pastors. Or, and so you had a job as well as that. So I think, I think the enthusiasm of being young is great. And I think the energy is great. But I think the lack of wisdom can actually be quite destructive. And looking back on it, there were many, many things that I, I mean, I was on everything. You know, I'm one of those guys that was on the stage with Billy Graham, you know, and, yeah. and Frank. And, and, and yeah, it's, but when you're 26, you know, you, you have no idea. And you think bigger is better and all that. I'm not, I'm not sure that's actually true. But nonetheless, that was that was the route, and you were you were part of that as well. Yeah. yeah. So you, that was the route. You know, all these things were happening, and they weren't all bad. I mean, there was lots of great stuff happening, and lots of lots of exciting things happening. Mm. But I reached a point with some of them, like Spring Harvest and Brainstormers. And I had to go to the leadership of this business. And said, look, I can't do this anymore, and I gave them my reasons why I couldn't do it. Some of the reasons were I just didn't, I just didn't buy it anymore. Yeah. But other reasons were, I mean, you know, with Steve Chalk, and I love Steve, still love Steve, but Steve had me doing the, the seminars on sexuality, and, and so every year I would do these brainstormers, and it was the same youth workers coming every year, and I would say, what's wrong with these guys? Nothing's changed, you know? I mean, apart, apart from the advent of AIDS, I think nowadays with, with uh, you know, transgender rights and stuff, there's a lot more that people think about much wider, but in those days, nothing much was changing in a couple of years. And so you were telling, you were giving the same seminar and it was the same guys coming back and you think, what, what the heck, you know? Yeah. And there were youth workers, they should have known that stuff, yeah. you know? So I just got a bit like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not doing this. And, and so um, I might have thrown the baby out of the bathwater, but I basically stopped doing, going to all of them, I didn't stopped spring harvest stopped all the national and international event committees because i was on committee meetings probably two and a half weeks out of every month so when there were summer you know summer kids clubs and stuff and i was i was going all summer doing one after the other you know so yeah it was it was a bit much i mean i think a lot of it at the time i was quite excited about it but I, i'm pretty sure some of those things led to some of my downfalls later on sure. you know some of those choices I'm making myself so busy, brought about things in my life that weren't, weren't good. So, however, you know, it really has been 2020 and 2020, hasn't it? Oh, no. you, know, you, you, look, you look back and you realise you realize your mistakes. But then the whole musical thing took off for you, didn't it? Oh, GB Electric. In the 80s, the late 80s. Um, I think Electrics got together for the first thing at Impact 88, and it was like six songs we played. And it was really just because we couldn't afford big bands. So we could afford, like, I think the big band was split level, you know. 
we could afford a couple of big bonds and everybody else got the petrol paid. It was, that's how it was. And, um, and so the electric roll was free, you know, <laughs> and I think we, we, Paul and I made, came together after we left another band called Into Penny and we recorded six songs. And so we did that. But within about six months of that, we were touring in Portugal, Spain and France. And then we were playing all these universities and, and then, yeah, and then in 91, Visions and Dreams came out. Tony Cummings heard some of our music, wanted to produce a record, produced it. Word got a hold of it, and then bam, that was it. Um, yeah, nobody was more surprised than me, believe me. It's, um, it's amazing. I remember, to this I remember. day, well, to this day, I was in um, Holland, Mich Michigan, um, and I was doing a radio show, in this, and the guy who was interviewing me didn't know me at all. And um, about halfway through the interview, and he said, so you, you had some record deals in America. And I said, well, I was with a band called Electrics. And the other guy in the studio just did fill up his seat. And to this day, people still bring Visions and Dreams albums to get signed. And, wow. And, and still ask for old songs. And, you know, the blessing, I can't skip it. Just, it's always well, there. It's so, funny, I've, I've, said, I've written a wee note to myself saying, you know, people say that every songwriter has got their pension plan song. And I know that people have said to you that the blessing's your pension plan song. May the sun be warm and may the skies be blue And may each storm that comes your way Clear the air for a brighter day May the saints and Savior watch over you As you make your way through the soul word of ours As you see the beauty of the morning dew As you smell those summer flowers As you pass away the hours May the saints and Savior watch over you May your life in this world be a happy one May the sun be warm and may the skies be blue and may each storm that comes your way Clear the air for a brighter day May the saints and Savior watch over you Feel the warmth and love they have for you 
the wars and hate that others radiate. May the saints and Savior watch over you. And may your life in this world be a happy one. May the sun be warm and may, may, may the skies be blue. Um, well, part of the story of my life on yours is I'm skint a lot of the time and with money. And I, I, the, the, the blessing of Be Grateful is a pension song. Um, I don't know if that's going to be the. I still get royalties, but I could probably buy both Starbucks on it, you know. <laughs> but um, I was working as a pastor in Dumbarton, Scotland. And um, sorry, I keep saying things like Dumbarton, Scotland. It's because I spend so much time in America. You have to qualify what the town is by the country or state in America. Because, uh, you know, there's 40, there's 40 Glasgow's in America. I know. Um, and, in Michigan. <laughs> I, so um, I, was, I was working as a pastor in Dumbarton, and I had a young fella who we got. You, you remember those, those schemes you could get um, employ people on part-time? Oh, yeah, the youth schemes and stuff, yeah. Well, we got money to employ a youth pastor. And so this young fella called Robert Ross became my youth pastor. And um, I walked through a lot of stuff with him. You know, I buried his mother and when she died of cancer. And, and he helped me out with the work there. But anyway, he was marrying this girl and he wanted me to do the wedding. And I said, sure. But the wedding was set for after my contract had finished, about three or four months afterwards. And I really, I didn't have a job and didn't have any money. So I wrote them that song as a wedding gift. I also rewired their house. I mean, it wasn't like I just gave them a song. But I reckon if you're going to get given any of my songs, that's the one to get given. Um, but, you know, I, I wrote it the way I write any other song. I didn't think any more about it. And, of um, course. I mean, it gets used in all sorts of settings, doesn't it? I mean, you know, you know Fiona, my wife. I mean, her yeah. schools sing it at yeah. the primary seven graduation every year. And I get, I get letters on it and e emails these days. You know, still I get emails certainly every month or two about that song, and and sometimes amazing stories. I um, my um, my favorite story about that song is uh, Stuart Trotter and I were in Germany doing acoustic shows together, and they'd given us a house to send. It was a beautiful little German village. I can't remember where, um, but anyway, so Stuart and I were sitting having a coffee, and um, someone knocked the door. And, Open the door and there's this big strapping German bloke, as they tend to be. This big, good-looking, blonde, blue-eyed, you know, chisel-chinned big dude. And he said to me, Sammy, he says, my, my mother would like to speak to you. And I said, all right. And I looked at Stuart and I thought, so you made, we, we walked in. You immediately think, what have I done wrong? <laughs> if somebody says to me, if somebody says to me, the elders want to speak to me, and they will have done something. But yeah. I... I um, we went down in the middle of this little village and went into this lady's house who couldn't speak any English. So this big German bloke had to translate it for us, which was hugely embarrassing for all of us. But she started going on and on. And 
he was an extreme sportsman. He looked like he was. And he had done this thing a couple of years back where they dropped him in the Burmese jungle. And he had two, I think it's three days to get out and he got lost. And he was lost for a couple of weeks and they thought he was dead, but he, he, he got out. But his mother was, as you can imagine, his mother was not mm. happy about this. And his next trip was to go um, snowboarding. You know, a thing where they jump out of a helicopter. Yeah. He was doing that next. And she was like, she didn't want, she did not want him to go. And this poor guy's having to translate this to this. She's raving, pointing at him, shaking her finger. And I'm like, oh, man, the guy's getting redder as he's telling us. And then she says to me, so I want you to sing the blessing over him before he goes. And I'm like, I didn't have a guitar, nothing. And she pointed to this old piano in the corner. And Stuart, Stuart could kind of play piano, not well, you know, hit chords. So Stuart sits down at this old out of chain pointing piano and starts hitting the chords. <laughs> and I'm singing over this six foot three German athlete and he's getting redder and I'm dying. And uh, she's got her eyes closed and her hands up. God, why do you let these things happen? Anyway, she thanked us and gave us a kiss and we left and the big guy just sort of shook his head and we said, you know, and we left just embarrassed, thought no more about it. But about two or three weeks later, I was at home and um, I get this email. It was from a satellite link. So I clicked it open and um, it was this guy. And he said, Sammy, I need to tell you, we were at base camp and the, the chopper came down and uh, the pilot says, now make sure you have everything. You know, we can't come back. have to have everything. So he was in the chopper and the, the blades were spinning and we were in getting the, the stuff out of the body and um, we were taking too long, so the pilot got out of the chopper and went into the body to tell him to hurry up to get their stuff. <laughs> and the, the helicopter exploded when there was no one in it. Wow. The chopper blew up, so he said to me, so thank you. So um, I try to sell a song now by saying, basically, if you let me sing this to you, you won't die in a helicopter accident, <laughs> which I think has been true the whole time. Who knew that's all it was about? But yeah, so oh, that's my favorite. There's a track record of it. <laughs> yeah. No one I know of has died in a helicopter accident that I've sang that to. Oh, wow. I mean, but there's a, you know, there are baby dedications of weddings, blessings, all sorts of things. Yeah. They're all lovely, but that was, that was a spectacular one. Yeah. So, I mean, apart from the blessing, is, are there any of your songs that you're particularly proud of or any of your albums that you think that whole thing came together and I'm really proud of that we made that? Yeah, I mean, I think... Um, for the electrics, for me, the best album was still the whole shebang, I think. Mm. And um, and that was that was one of the best that was one of the best versions of the electrics. Chris, Chris McCune, of course, was on there. And um, we all went to Nashville together and um, it was I mean you're you're having Buddy Miller produce your album, which is never gonna be bad. But it was a it was it was a beautiful sort of kind of relaxed experience. Then we all went on holiday together as well. We went to Memphis and Florida and um, hung out together. So it was it was a nice it was a nice way to record. But I think that album to me felt like the most organic mm. and the closest thing to the live electric sound we ever recorded. Um, and everybody everybody played well on it and did well. Mm. So I think I think that was my favorite electric album. I 
get in my mind, my heart, my soul The things that drive me up the pole My white as snow, my black as coal I hope she find you I give my life, I give my dad I give me early morning breath My love for dear Elizabeth I hope she find you I give my kin, I give my clan I give my tribe, I gang Of everything you call me You only got the whole shebang I give my hands, I give my feet, I give my drummer and his beat My victory and my defeat, the whole shebang to you I give my mind, I give my dad, the best friends that I ever had I give my happy and my sad, the whole shebang to you I give my kin, I give my clan, I give my tribe a gang Of everything you call me own, you got the whole shebang Sweet Sorrows, I think. I think our last one, actually, the Australian Sessions, has been my favourite of our all our recordings. Yeah. Part of that was it was recorded in the Dandenong regions up around Melbourne, and, and it's just beautiful, you know. I must be out of my mind to put myself on the line. But I do it willingly for you In the past I've been a fool But I'll bend my only rule And I'll do it willingly for you Cause it's more than the sunlight Through the frozen trees bouquet Steam rising up in the morning foggy grey More than the night Calling out your name More than wine on the table That makes me want to stay I must be out of my mind To put myself on the line But I do it willingly For you In the past I've been a fool But I'll bend my only rule And I'll do it willingly Talking to the morning, holding the darkness at bay When we walk into the wilderness to celebrate the day When my old blues crunch beside yours 
said is it your alter ego i says i'm probably his alter ego <laughs> i'm probably better behaved than reverend sam you know he's a few naughty words here and there um, but uh, i remember well, it's, sorry sorry no go, you go i remember when you came back from nashville um having done the whole shebang uh i was doing a little radio show and i interviewed you and chris and is it davy or I can't remember who it was. I can't remember who. I think Alan might have. No, Alan wasn't around at that point. Heather, maybe. Might be Heather. Heather. But I remember, and you all had your cowboy boots. That was the big thing from Nashville. You all had cowboy boots. <laughs> they lost our luggage, and we all got money. We all had cowboy boots. That's right. <laughs> and then the luggage turned up, which was great. Uh, um, but yeah, yeah, it was good. Oh no, they were good times. You know, I mean. You know, it, bands and, and musicians and all, you know, it, it's it's all life stuff happens. People get married, have kids, people fall out. But at, at the end of the day, I think when we were together, we did some really good things. And, you know, I have no regrets about any of that. I have no hard feelings with anybody that I've ever played with. You know, I mean, some, some people were easier to get on with than others. I mean, we had this guy play, we had this guy play accordion just for a very short period. And the mad thing was, he was a fantastic accordion player. He was amazing. He played the MIDI accordion, but he did all the Scottish tunes. And if it was just him on his own, it sounded like a band. He was amazing, but he couldn't play with a band. He wow. just couldn't do it. It was bizarre. Wow. So, you know, every now and again, you think, yeah, that's not really going to work, man. And uh, you, you always feel a bit, that was in the middle of a record, as well, I had to tell him that. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, he couldn't play in time. He just couldn't play in time. So, so you know he was listening yeah. to the tunes in his head <laughs> he was so used to playing on his own to his own time i think that was yeah. it but oh no i mean i think you know we were and we were all we were all going through our own stuff as well you know yeah. Every, yeah. you got to remember even in a band everybody's got their stuff um including me so i wouldn't say i always got it right you know, very often i was i was the bad guy so um but um all these years later you know the original lineup are still great friends. I mean, yeah. me, David, Paul, and Alan are still great friends. So. But now, because I had a quick look on the internet to see, is, is there anything with Sammy that I don't know that's out there? 
and the, the only thing I saw was that the original lineup is being put forward as the current lineup. Is that is it come well, full circle? So the, the four of you are sort of come full yeah. circle with, with the addition of Tim Cottrell playing fiddle. Uh, um, because you know, for reels and jigs and all that, yeah. and that. Um, but Tim's been Tim's been with us for probably He's been around the while though, hasn't he, Tim? Probably eighteen years or so. Yeah, I mean Tim's and Tim's all over my stuff. And he does all my recordings. He's great. But um, well, it only came full circle because on our thirtieth anniversary, we knew thirty was coming up, and Paul, I think, had written to me, and um, Kylie and I were actually on tour. Um, the year before, that's what it was, the year before, at 29th. And uh, Paul, Paul put on a gig for us down Greenick, and he says, why don't we get the band to open for you? And I said, I mean, having the electrics open for the Sweet Sorrows seems, seems the wrong way around. And also there's a bit <laughs> noisy, you know. And um, anyway, Alan and Davey said, I'll be great fun. Let's, you know, we'll just do half a dozen songs. And, um, and so the boys came down. And... We rehearsed just that afternoon, and it must have been muscle memory, but it sounded better than ever. <laughs> and so we played, and we did sound better than ever. And Paul said, "You know, next year's thirty years. We should just, we should just do it. Just do, you know, the original line. Just and um, and we did, and then we did a few tours. We did a little tour in Germany as well, yeah. and it was red hot. The guys were great. That's the thing about music: your body gets older, but you should get better. Yeah, you know." Yeah, you know, you, we wanted to call the tour a little older, a little wider. <laughs> <laughs> but since, I mean, I've obviously seen you, you guys play loads and, you know, the bands that I worked with, some of them gigged with you and stuff. But I remember, I remember I um, got to see you supporting Runrig at the Barras, Glasgow Aye. Battlelands. Aye. And uh, I mean, it was great. I thought, I thought the gig was great. But I have to confess that Halfway through Ring Runrig's first song, we thought, "This is boring. Let's go." <laughs> we left. <laughs> yeah, that was that was another one of those. I was sitting in the house one night. Actually, it's a blessing-related song. I was sitting in the house one night. I can remember exactly what I was doing. I was eating a kebab and I was watching the bill. <laughs> it, this this stuck in my head so clearly because of this. I'm watching the kebab or I'm eating a kebab and I'm watching the bill, and the phone rings. And I picked, I was just beside me, I picked up the phone and I says, hello, hello, it was this woman. And she says, well, is that Sammy Horner? I says, it is, I. And she says, hi, I'm Runrig's manager. And we wondered if you'd like to open for Run, um, Rory, who was the best player, heard your song, The Blessing, on the radio. And um, he wondered if you guys would be interested in opening for Runrig at Livingston Ice Rink. And I thought it was Davy's girlfriend. <laughs> so, so meet the kebab didn't even turn the TV down I meet the kebab and I'm saying things like well what are you going to pay us and she says well we don't normally pay opening acts you know we normally do and I says oh no 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 I couldn't do it for nothing I mean you'd need to cough up a bit and she says well what about a hundred and I says well it's a bit low isn't it and she started swearing at me and she says do you want to do this such and such gig or not and I realised it was real so <laughs> So I said, sure. And we went and did Livingston Ice Rink with them. And they loved us. And they asked us to do the big wheel tour with them. Mm. The, whole, the whole gig, the whole tour. The, well, UK tour. And we couldn't because we had a two-week tour in Germany. But we could do the final night in the Barrowlands. So that's we did the, the first gig and the last gig. Uh -huh. and that was it. But yeah, it was great. They were really nice. Really nice yeah, I remember that. 
Yeah. The other gig I remember is the King Tut's gig you did with um, Eden Burning. I think we did about four of those, didn't we? The one, the one, the one when the condensation blew the equipment. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I remember that, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. King Tut's always, uh, always astounded me that it was such a popular venue because it was really dying. Um, yeah. But there you go. Hi. Uh, oh, there's, yeah, a lot, lots of good memories of that stuff, you know. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's been, it's, it's been a ride for sure. And, and I always say that nobody's more surprised than I am. Because, I mean, everybody, I, do, you, do, you know, um, do you know Rick Elias or you know of Rick Elias? I know of Rick Elias, yeah. So Rick was a good mate of mine, and uh, and the Electrics played a wee bit with him as well in Germany. But and Rick was great, you know. I mean, Rick was one of the ragamuffins and wrote stuff for Tom Hanks, that mm-hmm. thing you do, big fat Greek wedding, and great songwriter. And um, I was sitting with him one night somewhere on tour, and I says, "But like a guy like you, you know, you're a great player, and you got this great. I mean, he was a cool looking big rock star dude, you know." And I said, you got the look and you got, you know, you can play and you got that great voice. And I said, I always feel like, um, I always feel like a bit like I'm, I'm getting away with it, you know? He says, no, 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 no. What's the syndrome? <laughs> well, I, I think I, I honestly, to this day, I still think everybody does it better than me. I don't, I don't have this great, it, it's not like false humility. I just realize my limitations. Sure. But Rick, Rick said to me, he says, look, here's the secret surround yourself with people who are better than you <laughs> and then you do your bit and what they do will make it better and he was right you know i mean paul um alan chris jimmy d buddy miller um all of these people were better musicians all of them way better way better what they did brought so much to my offering to it and it's always been like that. And um, I'm really, I'm really grateful for those people, you know. But um, I know you've got a wife, doesn't She's pretty good, I. And, <laughs> um, but you know, I, I. And then, of course, in those days, we met Buddy Miller and through Buddy, we met Phil Madeira, and all of these guys have become Amy Lou Harris. You know, oh, they, these guys are all in the stratosphere now. But they're still just my mates, so they still do things for me. I mean, Phil. During the pandemic, when I was doing the Faraway Places album, Phil just emailed me. He says, "You know, if you need me to whack something on, so just give me a call." Wow. And um, you don't you don't get that offer often from Nashville, believe me. So, um, yeah. So, but we're friends, you know. We've, we've walked through stuff together. We know more about each other than just the records we put out, and um, we know our own flaws and frailty, and um, and I think I think as you get older, you become more aware of that. Yeah, I mean, holding on, holding on to grudges and being angry with people for years is just a waste of, a waste of your life and your energy. Yeah. Because mostly the people you're angry with are just, you know, having a kebab and watching the bill and not caring. <laughs> That's a long career in music that, mm-hmm. you know, much much longer than a one hit wonder. So how how is faith worked for you through all that, Sammy? Um, I know it's a very broad question, but. Yeah, I mean, I think part of part of what has sustained me has been the belief that there's something bigger than just me and this. <clears throat> I don't. Um, I think I got. I think I got my little little bit to do, and I've had my faith. Um, I think. I think my faith's been tested. Theolo- 
there are two sides to that. Theologically, I'm a long way from where I was 30 mm. years ago, you know, and that was because 30 years ago, I only knew what I knew then. I know more now and I've seen more of life and I've seen what happens and I, I've seen the darker part of life a lot more than I did back then, even though I grew up in Belfast, mm. you know, I mean, you go to places like Burma. I mean, we, my wife and I run a mission on the, um, on the border of Burma and Thailand and it's mainly Burmese men I work with and I teach them how to be electricians. We certify them, we give them tools and find them jobs as well. But, um, the, two years ago when we were there, there was 46 men, 46 people, not just men, because Kylie ran medical stuff. There's 46 people coming down from Burma. Eight of them, eight of them made it. Six of them were murdered en route and the rest had to disperse. Wow. And, and so, yeah, and, I, and, and often we'll think, oh, it's, it's Christian persecution. No, quite a lot of these people are Muslim, not Christian. Quite a lot of these people are Buddhist, not Christian. You know, they're just in the wrong place and the rebel armies just kill them. So, and if you're a Rohingya or something like that, these people are being slaughtered right now, being slaughtered. Yeah. So Belfast, Belfast was bad enough, you know, yeah. and it was bad. But there are places right now that are worse. Sure. They're worse. And so my faith has um, come to a place where I realize actually it's probably not my faith that helps me hang on. It's probably God's god's gift to me that hangs on to me rather than anything i can do that's good because like everybody else i think um the questions are well where are you god in this what why is this happening how, how can this be your will i mean how can this be sure and then i keep coming back to well it's not it's not it's those of us who believe that it's not as well you should be doing something and standing up and um, I mean, in terms of world poverty, in terms of world poverty, if we just, if all of us just lived a 10% or something, I think it's a 10%. But basically, if you just don't buy your coffee out, you know, every day, there's somebody else in the world can just live on it. I mean, it's not, the world yeah. is not, the, 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 um, the financial problems and economic problems of these two-third countries are not insurmountable mm. but the matter is we have bought in the west we have bought a system you know they had black friday here in ireland it's an american thing and uh black friday is just really an evangelical approach to consumerism mm. so in the year when people have lost their jobs are living on benefits can't pay the rent or frightened that they won't be able to buy their kid a decent Christmas present. Not that that's even essential, but we'd like to do that. In the year that that has happened, capitalism still has a seal and says, come by, mm -hmm. come get, get more stuff. And we don't need the stuff. No, we don't. And I'm as guilty as anyone. I'm as guilty as anyone. Um, but, but we've come to realize, my wife and I have come to realize how little it takes to change someone's life in many of these countries. And so um, we give 10% of our time and probably more than 10% of what we earn um, to once a year going out there and, and throughout the year supporting things as well. Yeah. And, uh, and that's we like, have a young... Years you've been doing that though, isn't it? It's not just 
No, every year. Yeah. yeah. Um, and last year I trained, I think, 40, 40 something young men oh. and supplied them all the toolkits. Yeah. Well, I've been um, in Burma and I, I know what the wiring's like. So <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, well, not, it's not just a kindness, but it's actually an essential for some life saving skill. In, in Thailand, the second cause of accidental death is electric shock still. Wow. Um, we also had um, a young guy from Mayfair Lane, Reese Thurston, who I've known since he was a kid. He's a great studio engineer and musician. And he came out with me and we built the studio as well, a recording studio, and um, set up a music program. That's awesome. And about two months ago, and if you've been to Burma, you'll know how amazing this is. About two or three months ago, I got a phone call. So we've had to do all the training on the Thai side, just over the border, just over the Rintoy River. Um, and um, I got a phone call to say, hey, Sammy, um, one of the guys I trained has been going through the villages in Burma, running trade schools to teach people how to wire their villages properly. He's run like 40 of them this year. Wow. And, and then he runs a trade school, then he has them fix their village. It's amazing. But he was an ex-rebel army um, um, commander. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so he knows the rebel armies. And this is part of the problem there. The rebel armies are a huge problem. Yeah. They're all fighting each other. And um, he has permission from the, um, the rebel armies. He's permission from the Buddhist council and permission from the Burmese government for us to build a training center in Burma. Wow. So. So that'll be, well, with COVID, who knows? Yeah. We're hoping next year it can start, though. Um, and that'll be building so, a full facility. So how do you pay for that, Sammy? We never know how we pay for the rest of it. And no, I mean, normally what we do is we put a chunk away from what we tour with. Mm. And um, it's an average of five to 7,000 a year to mm. do it. The training center's going to be about 50, I think. So, well, um, I just I just said yes. I mean, do you want to do it? I said sure. I don't know how we'll do it. <laughs> I know you don't put out appeals and all that, but how if people if that touches people's hearts and they think I'd want to I want to support Sammy and Kylie doing that, I want to invest in these young men and young women. How can they do that, Sammy? Well, it depends where you are in the world. If you're in Australia, Trade Off um, um, does have um, a charitable um, number, and you can get. Um, it's you'll get your tax on that um, I'll go against your tax it only works in Australia though um, but if you look at our website um, www.thesweetsorrows.com there's a page on there about trade-off and what we do and you can just contact us normally what we ask people to do is um, you know um, I mean we had people coming up and saying yeah I can't do very much and then we would explain to them that um, 50, 50 US dollars buys a full toolkit. 50 US dollars is about 30 quid. 30 quid. 30 quid. So what we say to people is, you know, I mean, for instance, um, our man in Burma right now, he's, he's basically an itinerant electrician, <clears throat> missionary. <laughs> wow. But we had to get him, we have had to um, get money to buy him a tool backpack that he can wear in his back instead of a toolkit that he carries through the jungle. Yeah. So he walks or goes on a bike everywhere. So um, so things like that. So we, we just put up specific things, you know, 50 bucks will buy this, 30 bucks will buy this. But it doesn't matter 
I mean, ten dollars will pay the pay for the lunch for a day for forty guys. You know, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but it does. A bit of, yeah. You know, buy a bag of rice and a chicken and a, a bunch of bunch of veggies, and you can I feed a lunch there. <laughs> Uh, me too. So, that's, um, the, that's the sweetsorrows.com they can get info on that then? Yeah, sweetsorrows.com. As, well as, as well as info in the band and everything else. As well as info on the Sweet Sorrows and our music. But yeah. um, sweetsorrows.com is a link to Trade Off. There's a page on Trade Off. And it's called Trade Off because I teach at Trade. And yeah. Kylie does. So, yeah. Um, oh, the other way to do it is simply um, just buy our music because a part of what we earn goes to it anyway. Sure. But some of obviously what we earn in our music goes to pay our electricity bills and buy us food and stuff. As you can see, we're not starving. <laughs> <laughs> the days were long and dreadful. The landlords were unkind. No home, no food, no future. No joy, no peace of mind. They said there was a new world. The likes of us could live. So we headed to the Docklands to see what they could give. Now Captain Connolly was a Quaker, he was good and strong and fair. He welcomed us aboard and promised he would get us there. He said you'll have to pull your weight, but you will do just fine. I've never lost one passenger. Holloway There's nothing left there for us anyway The voyage won't be easy and there's nothing in between So we settled in the belly of the good ship Kelly G Captain Connell ran a tight ship They were a loyal crew Before they would set sail again You'd tell them what to do Treat passengers with deep respect and simple dignity Any sailor to ignore this will be answerable to me And soon the cruel ocean was beaten on the bow Connell smiled and shouted out, no going back there now But I've seen the place you're headed, and it is rich and green where it get their safety on the good ship Kelly G Haul away, boys, haul away There's nothing left there for us anyway And the voyage won't be easy and there's nothing in between So we settled in the belly Shared a meal with us and looked us in the eye 
children and your people will not die. All the way, boys, all the way. There's nothing left there for us anyway. In the voyage you won't be easy and there's nothing in between. So we settled in the belly of the good ship Kelly Jean. All the way, boys, all the way. There's nothing left there for us anyway. In the voyage you won't be easy and there's nothing in between. much here but there's one thing I want to I want to talk about now tell me about the Vatican <laughs> well I was um, a Scotsman called Darren McLean do you know Darren no name rings a bell but I don't think I've met him um, Chris would have met him because I think Chris was in the band when we went up north um, to play in Lossiemouth he was, um, he was a student at the same time as me, but he's about 12 years younger than me. And um, he was a Baptist minister in Lossiemouth, in, up in north in Scotland. And um, I, brilliant, brilliant intellect, great, great academic guy. And um, he would bring people like Tony Compolo to Lossiemouth, which, as you can imagine, wow. is a major culture shock for the north of Scotland. And um, I knew him at college, but not that well, because um, he was a lot younger than me. But when he went up there, he liked my music, so he would invite the band up to play at these events and um, stayed in touch. And then he ended up in Toronto as a pastor. And it would be, um, well, it would be about 20, 20 something years ago now. Um, but he said to me, he called me one day, he says, like, I'd love to get you out here to do the music for the church. So they flew me out to Toronto. And it all went well, actually. And I'd never fancied myself as a church music guy. Um, for me, it's it. I, I realize that, that I realize the necessity of it, but for me personally, it was a bit too narrow. Mm -hmm. And um, anyway, it went well, and I actually thought I might take it, and then I just never heard anything because his elders, Darren was causing so much trouble because he was so radical. His <laughs> elders, they met me and they thought, well, "Bring this guy," and they only told me this like years later, but they never got back to me. Anyway, for about ten years, I would go out there every summer and I'd do their kids camp summer camp for them and do the you know the inspirational bit at it and um every year he would say come and work for me and i'd be like yeah yeah anyway after 10 years of goading me eventually i said i would go and when i arrived there i was working with the young people and kids mainly but our community was a italian catholic community and um and so lots of people were bringing their kids to my kids' event, even though they didn't come to church, mm -hmm. because they liked, they liked their own tradition, but there was nothing for the children. So they would drop the kids off with us, go to mass, and then come back get their kids. But we had loads of these kids. But then what happened was often you know, we, would get, we would pick up the pastoral slack with the families when stuff went down. But we noticed we were getting more and more families coming, saying they had curses put on them. And my initial response was like, you know, have I, what happened? Have I come to Hogwarts here? You know, I mean, it was, 
there was there was a lot of it yeah more than you'd think and and i've heard of people i mean i've had people in the past tell me you know they thought maybe there was something in their house or or they were seeing shadows or they had bad feelings inside them i've had all that and you expect that but a curse you know it seemed but not only from the Italian community, but also from some of the African community. And when we quizzed them on it, we found that they'd gone to shamans who had been charging them oh. to lift the curse for a while, and then you go back in a year and you pay some more. And our, our answer, when they said, can you help us, our answer always was, no, we can't, but we know someone who can. And, and when we explained that to them, we said, and because we cannot help you, because it's God's work to help you, we cannot charge you. So there'll be no cost involved for any any of this work because we can't take credit for it. It's God's work, and um, and so with more and more people come on with these Lincoln things. When did we do it for free? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the the um, the tradition of Christian exorcists um, all through church history, but also in particularly in Scripture, is that it was free. Mm. There were professional exorcists in Jesus' days who charged. But the Christians didn't yeah. because they believed it was God's work. And they couldn't, it was God did the work. Anyway, so we um, we sort of knew what to do. You know, I mean, we weren't dumb. I mean, we knew how to pray and we knew how to talk with people. But the two of us felt like we could be a little bit more armed and it'd be good to find a, a good course. And we looked all over North America. Um, and most of the courses you wouldn't went on, they were charlatans, you know. I mean, a lot of these nuts, you know. and And... And we just thought no. And then we found the exor the um the Vatican had been doing a course on exorcism and liberation mm. um, for a number of years, but it was only the priests who were allowed to go. And we just thought, well, we won't get in. We're the only two Baptists. But anyway, we wrote and they got back to us and says, you know, we've been really praying and think that it's really important that people from other traditions learn this. So um they accepted us. So the two flew off to Rome and um, went to the Vatican University, and uh, it was it was interesting. I mean, lots, particularly our Baptist friends, you know, were saying, "Oh, what are you going to the Vatican for? We've got nothing in common," which is a, an insane thing to say. I mean, I mean, we've got more in common than we don't have in common. Yeah. Is the fact of the matter? Do I do I buy all Catholic dogma? No, but do I buy all Baptist dogma? dogma maybe even no more you know and so and so it was it was a university course and it was and so they had they had a guy from edinburgh actually who was a neuroscientist and his team had solved the problem of anarchic or alien hand syndrome wow. which is which is you know you pick up your coffee to drink it in your right hand your left hand takes your coffee up and sets it down and then eventually you're your other hand becomes violent towards you, beats you and punches you. I know people were suffering from this. Now people thought this was demonic. Mm. But this guy this guy's team discovered a small lesion in the front of the wow. that all and that was the problem. Wow. And so he was a brilliant neuroscientist. So with that level of teachers and we had um, we had theologians, we had sociologists, criminologists, police, amazing, amazing course. And we had um, Gabriel Armoth. Gabriel Armoth was the Vatican's chief exorcist. Wow. He looked like Yoda. He was about <laughs> 200 years old and he had a big baritone voice and spoke in Italian, of course. And he was fantastic. 
But we learned all kinds. In fact, at one point he said, the, the people who are chosen to be exorcists usually are not the high-ranking priests. They're usually the priests that have a crappy little inner city parish where nothing ever goes right and they always feel dejected. I mean, they're like, they're like the floor sweepers. He says, because humility is essential because you have to realize you can't do anything. Wow. Understanding that this is God's work and it's him you have to rely on is the first thing. And the second thing he said is you need to be, um, you need to, to explore every possibility. So you need to be kind of a little bit cynical of the stories you're hearing. You know, things are falling off the wall. We'll check and see if next door's kids are run up and down too hard. You know, yeah. I'm seeing shadows at night. See if there's a hole in the curtains where the car lights are shining through when people walk by. You know what I mean? And 99% and of the time, that would be the case. Wow. That's the case. And so it was a fantastic course. And um, and we went back to um, we went back to Toronto, better armed, I think. In fact, so much so that the um, the hospital in Toronto that dealt with mental illness um, asked if they could have our our numbers because every year there was at least several patients that they could not diagnose with mental illness. Wow. Yeah. And people like you know, Patrick McNamara, who's one of the world's leading um, neuroscientists, and wrote two books on possession, spirit possession. Fantastic, expensive, but fantastic. But his conclusion at the end was that if the medical model does not offer a ritual exorcism as a genuine cure for anyone who believes themselves to be possessed, they're ethically appalled. Wow. So it was, it was a fantastic course. I would love to have went on and done more, but, um, and, and I read a ton, but there comes a point where that stuff we need to watch how much of it read. You can get obsessive with it because that is interesting. Yeah. And, um, and I'm a Stephen King fan. So, you know, if you read um, like Hostage to the Devil by Malachi Martin, it reads like a five Stephen King stories. He says they're true. But anyways. Yeah. Well, what, what a journey, man, from, from a, a Northern Irish Protestant background to studying at the Vatican University. <laughs> That's some journey, isn't it? It really is, eh? Wow. Um, well, I'm with, was it Aristotle that said, I'll go wherever the truth takes me? You know, I, I don't, I mean, I see, the, I see the benefit in traditions, not only in the church, but in music, and you know, there are benefits in it because sure. it meets people's needs where they are. But apart from those benefits, I don't, I don't hold any of them. I mean, I, I think, I, I think the truth is found in all kinds of places. And, um, I think the part of the problem for boys like me and you was we were basically taught only evangelicals had the truth. And now we realize that actually. And the rest of the world is possessed. <laughs> they get quite a lot wrong, you know? And, and so in my opinion, anyway, but I, I, I'm still, um, I'm still based. I, I think I've come to a place now that I'm in my sixth, sixth decade. Um, that, if you can jive with um, loving God and loving others and doing your best to love those others unconditionally as God loves you. Yeah. And that doesn't mean to say you'll manage that, doing your best at it. If you can jive with that, I'm with you. You know, yeah. I don't care. If you, I don't care what you are if you're with that. 
Oh, Jesus tried that way, didn't he? That's how I Jesus summed it all up. I think summed I think some a couple of thousand years ago summed it up better than me. But the fact of the matter is, I find people now who wouldn't who wouldn't say they're Christian, who speak the language of Christianity better than some Christians, mm. you know. And so, you know, all that stuff, you mean, have you prayed the sinner's prayer and have you done this? And have you followed the rules to get into the club? I don't buy them. No. I think some people are a lot closer to God than we think. One, one of the, one of the um, case studies we did at the Vatican was the, um, what do you call that couple? Um, sorry, my, my head's not quite in it this morning. You know these movies like Annabelle and um, Conjuring and all that? Mm. They're all based on the case studies from an American couple who were called America's Great Demonologists. All right. But um, she would have these visions and she could see spirits and she could see things. Uh-huh. So she'd go into her and she would see these things. And of course, in the beginning, she just she called herself a medium. Yeah. But then they realized some of these things wouldn't go and they had to get a Christian minister or a Christian priest. It was usually a priest because they, they knew the Catholic tradition. And um, they would get the priest in to do the right. But in the end, they, um, Lorraine um, Warrens, the Warrens. Right. So Lorraine, Lorraine Warren, in, at the very beginning, called herself a medium. Now I can imagine what the church would think of her. But in the end, the Catholic church says, no, this is... You aren't medium. You have a you have the spiritual gift of discernment. You just didn't know what it was. Yeah. You couldn't you couldn't put words to it. And I I can't blame people for not having the words to explain why they say certain things or believe certain things that I see as very Christ-like. Yeah. And um, and the interesting thing about my world is that no one in my world um, who are Christian ever calls me reverend. Even though I am a reverend, no one calls me reverend. The only people who call me reverend are my atheist and mad off the wall artist friends. <laughs> They'll call me reverend, which I kind of like. I kind of like that. But and and they, they talk as much truth at times as the church does. Yeah. And that's not getting into the nitty gritty of oh well, you know, yeah. are they saved? Are they? But I don't know. Yeah. I don't know where they are. But I do know that they display Christ-like qualities at times. And I do know that Christians often display nothing but judgment and anger and hatred and resentment and isolation and non-community and all of those things. And Sadly, very true, isn't it? And, and people have been seeing that for, for so long. That, yeah. And for so long, we weren't able to see it ourselves. As, as, I don't just mean you and me. I mean, like, evangelical yeah. Christianity haven't been able to see it. You know? Well, you live in a bubble. You live in a bubble. And I think that, I mean, I see the, don't get me wrong now, I see the best of the church as well. I mean, I see people in slogging away in Burma and Thailand and inner city and in Glasgow. You know, and I, I see people who, who really, who really live that out. So it's not like everybody thinks like that, oh. but, but I can't, um, if, I, if I'm going to judge the people I know who don't say they believe in things I believe in, but still display Christ-like qualities. If I'm going to judge them, then I must, by the same measure, judge myself first of all. Yeah. And uh, am I am I am I showing Christ as much as this guy who says he doesn't believe in him? I mean, you know, was um, was the local church of Scotland minister showing as much compassion to Jesus as Bob Geldof during 
disbanded? Yeah. Did, did the local Church of Scotland minister have the same passion for the poor and the starving and the hungry? The people Jesus said we should have compassion on. Did he or did he? Who was shown? Who was more Christ-like? And it, and it, and it, all of that stuff's right there for you to read in the Bible. You know, two kids. One of them says, "Sure, Dad, I'll do what you asked me to do," and the other one says, "No, I'm not doing it." But then the one who said he didn't do it did it anyway, and the one who said he would do it didn't do it. That's 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 the same story. It's right there. It's always been there. And so I don't see why we're so surprised when we see people being more like Jesus and Christians. Mm -hmm. I think I think as well, like there's a, a massive body of people who would previously have, have identified as evangelical who have come along the same path as you have. I mean, I've come along a, lot, a long way along that path too. But there's an increasingly grown body of people who are walking that same journey, you know, and because they're realising that it's, it's love. Love God, love, love your neighbour, love yourself, uh, and everything will be right with the world. That's simplified, but that's the essence of it, you know. That's the essence of it. I, I was I had an email I had an email or a message discussion last night with a guy in California, and him and a bunch of guys who are who are pastors. None of them have been theologically trained. They all have daytime jobs, and they all run things like coffee shops and software companies. And and um, he said that um, in spite of the downside of COVID, of which of course there's a large one. But he says one of the things that's been really good is it's shown us that we don't need a, a building to go to church. Mm -hmm. We need to be church. Yeah. And he's right, you know. And um, all over the world, are, I mean, in Burma, people are the church. Not, they don't go to church. They're just in their village. They look after their neighbors. They, they wire lights. They fix things. They make sure people don't get electrocuted. I mean, these are the, this is the work of Jesus. This is not. Yeah. You know. Now, my friends who, who don't believe would say, oh, well, that's just what a decent person would do. They would just do good things. But one of the first things we read in the history section of the Bible, the book of Acts, the beginning of the church, is that Jesus went around doing good. Just did good stuff. Yeah. You know, he gave kids sweeties. He, he, you know, he, your table was broke, so he fixed the leg. I mean, he was a techos. He was a construction worker, not a, not a carpenter. So if the roof was falling in your house, come along and fix it for you. He just went around doing good. But I have a feeling when you stand before God and you, you know, you get to look at it all and you say to God, you know, I, I got that wrong. I get the feeling God will say, yeah, but you were still trying to love people. You were still doing it as best you knew how. And that's all we can do in the I end. Think just as you're saying that, it's that what God says to the prophet Samuel going to anoint David, he says, yeah, but I'm not looking at what they're doing. I'm looking at their hearts. Yeah. And I think that that's a massive part of it, Sammy, is like, where is your heart in this? Is it for your reputation? Is it for your ego? Or is it because you want to love in these people and help them? Yeah. Even if sometimes it's misplaced. I don't think yeah. God condemns that. No, and I, I think I think avoid it. I mean, when when we're told in the Bible to be truthful, to tell the truth, it's not just it's not just meaning it's not just meaning you don't tell an obvious lie. It means um, don't use flattering language. Don't 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 say things to get on to somebody on side. You know, all of this stuff is ba a bad way to use language. And I think using sexy language, like you said, this person was healed, or we saved this kid out of sex trafficking, seems to bring in more money to fund the thing, which is I think why people use it. But in fact, saying things like 
know what we did? We wired this wee woman's house for her. Now she's got a light and a plug and a fan. Doesn't sound sexy. But I tell you, if you live, if you live in the deep humidity of Burma and you get an electric fan, it's like you've went to heaven, you know? And, um, and it's the same, the same with, um, you know, you know, I didn't, I didn't pray for this man. So his, um, his bronchitis disappeared. What we did was, uh, we put, we put some walls up so that the wind wouldn't get in so that he'd be comfortable. It's just, it's still God's work. It's, and mm. I'm not, I'm not knocking one or the other. I just think you need to, you need to understand that doing simple things is also God's work. You don't, it doesn't always have to be these big miraculous things, you know, going shopping for your next door neighbor during COVID because she can't get out of the store is, 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 is a Jesus task. It's not, these are good things and Jesus did good. So do good. And, and if you can't start anywhere, I'll start there, you know, because people all, often say things, oh, I don't have faith to see somebody healed. You have the faith to run to Aldi's and buy a 60 quid's worth of shopping, you know, and it's not, you don't have to be a genius to be a Christian, thank God, or you and I would be in trouble. Oh, that, that, we'd be out of it, mate. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, I just think live your life, serve who's in front of you, be kind, be generous, be um, truthful, you know, don't try to get them on, on, their, on your side with flattering words. If, if they need some help, help them. If they need a talking to, talk to them. If they're struggling with their kids, sit them down with a cup of coffee and let them get it out. You know, I mean, this is all, this is all simple. You don't even need to be trained to do that. This is neighbor stuff. And that's why, that's why Jesus spoke about love your neighbor. They're just like you. They, things you get stuck on, they get stuck on it as well. But it's good to know that we get stuck. But when you think about the, the, the times that we grew up in, Sammy, in the 60s and 70s, that was normal life. Even in the midst of all the horror and everything else, there was always a neighbour who would sit, who would check in to make sure you're all right. Do you, I'm going to the, the, the shops. Do you want me to bring you back some milk or bread? Or You know, there was always that little bit of, you know. Yeah, yeah for sure. I mean, I, when I was growing up, if I got home from school and my mum wasn't in, I could go in next door. And the neighbor would make me a piece and a cup of milk and yep. something in front of the TV or something. But they, they would look after Non-British listeners, a piece is a sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, I, there was more of that, I think. Uh, one of the things, Kylie and I, one of the things that's been really great about this being home and having to be here is that um, we actually really do love our neighbors. We've got great neighbors in this area. And I have an old, we have a friend across the road, and he's a bit disabled, and he's a wee bit introvert. And so when we were home from tour, we would take him to the pub once a week just to get him out. That's all we did. Yeah. Um, but during COVID, we've lit a fire in the backyard, and the neighbors would come on all of the cans of beer, and we sit around the fire, and we talk about everything. We talk about faith. We talk about COVID. We talk about Donald Trump. We talk, you know, I mean, everything that people talk about. It's just like that. But it's like we've been given this little church here. And our next door neighbors are just the most beautiful young couple. And um, we, um, we had a lovely thing there. We boy had to do a thing at school about safety. And you had to have um, four people that if you had a problem, no, five people, if you had a problem for your five fingers, you knew you could trust and you could go to. And the people were his teacher, his mum, his dad, Kylie and Sammy. Oh. And I just think, I think that's, I think that is, as much, um, you know, a, 
a nudge from God's spirit as anything that little kids think these are these are people I can trust. These are good people. But I, I just feel that, you know, going down to pick up the neighbor's kids from school because they're getting home late from work is just as much a Jesus task as praying for somebody who's sick. And I don't need to have an awful lot of faith to do that. I just, very simple faith will do it. Or theology. Or theology. And, and, you know, when you were asking about how faith is sustained through this, <clears throat> there's, there's a story in the Bible about a mustard seed. And, you know, for years I was always told, well, this is really telling you all you need, all you need to have this tiny little piece of faith. And, of course, as you grow, and when you're a pastor, you know, you actually you, People don't think it, but actually do have to read books and study. And, and I don't think that's what Jesus was getting at at all. When you ask how faith has affected me, I think faith has affected me the same way it affects other people. And this is how I think it affects my friends who say they're not Christian. I think they've had the mustard seed. Because what a mustard seed actually is, is a pest. If a farmer got a mustard seed on his ground, he could not get rid of the bugger. He would try and kill it, wouldn't go. Next year, be back, and it would grow like wildfire. And I think this is the essence of faith. I, I think once it gets in there, even if it gets in by going to Sunday school and hearing Bible stories, even if it gets in due to a heated conversation with an atheist who can't stand God, why do you think atheists are so desperate to keep proving God isn't there? Because something's burning at them. I think my suspicion is it's mustard seed faith. Oh. And you can't get rid of it. So so you can stamp it out for a year or two. And it looks like it's gone and then there it is again. Just keeps coming back. And I think that's I think that's how faith has sustained me in all of this. Because I've had years where I've felt a lot more on fire for it than others, you know, for sure. I've had dark periods in my life. I've suffered from depression, um, you know, all sorts of things. So but it keeps coming back. And um at this point in my life, it seems like it's back stronger than ever. It seems like it's taken over the whole field, you know. Mm -hmm. But it's all right. That's all right. So like, I like that. I like that, Sammy. The, the mustard seed thing. Yeah, it's something that just gets in and and works away, and you either you either embrace the fact that it's there, or or you spend your whole life trying to, like you say, trying to stamp it out. It just doesn't go away, though. Uh, it just doesn't. I mean, this is when I read. You know, when I read some of the great atheist writers of today, who, who in fact are very clever men of very bad theology, um, you know, they say things, Christians believe this, and I think, well, I don't believe that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and then they will tell you, well, you're a bad Christian if you don't believe that. And I would say, well, how would you know? I mean, and and my, my second answer to that would be, of course, I'm a bad Christian. Everybody's a bad Christian. I mean, I can never live up to it. I'm always a bad Christian, but um, that's that's all right. I mean, I, I think Jesus didn't come for good Christians. Uh, I don't. <laughs> you know? I don't. I came to the conclusion, Sammy. I don't even think that God sees it through that kind of lens of good or bad. Or so, I mean, you're you're just a kid of His who uh, has a life to live, <laughs> and He wants to be involved in it. You know that to me. Yeah. That's you know. Well, we, you know we, we make bad choices and yeah. get things wrong and we upset people and we say things we wish we hadn't said. We all do that stuff. But I was at um, Cornerstone Arts Festival in Illinois years ago, a long time ago, and um, Charlie Peacock had a thing called the Art House, which was painters and fine arts. 
So I went in, I was having a look around, it was a big tent, you know, and one part of it had these gigantic faces painted, <clears throat> children and old people. And, and I was still, they were amazing, big, big pieces of art. And they were amazing, and I'm looking at them, and this woman came up to me and she says, what do you think? I says, yeah, they're pretty incredible. You know, the detail for that size, it's pretty incredible. And she says, yeah, yeah. She says, Are, do you paint? And I says, no, no. You know, I, I dabble, but I'm not. I'm not an artist. I says, and I muck about art, um, watercolor. I don't do oil or acrylic or anything. And, um, and she said to me, it's so unforgiving. You know, typical artist. I'm thinking unforgiving. If I don't like it, I just screw it up, throw it away, was my opinion. And um, she says, no, no, art's, art, watercolor's so unforgiving. That's why I use oils. And if she was the artist that done oh. these paintings. And she says, this, do you, which one do you like? And I told her, and she says, you know, that started off as still life, like a bowl of fruit. And it became this amazing child's face. And she says, that's the thing about, about oils. She says, and I believe oil painting is more like how God views her life. Starts out as one thing, but in the end, it just becomes something beautiful. Just keep painting over it. So the mistakes are, you know, they just, just, just keeps changing. Just oh. Start it as one thing and end up another. And um, it was a nice illustration, um, but I think she's probably right. You know, I mean, I've done some stupid things, um, said stupid things, mm. behaved badly, got it wrong, you know, messed up big time. Um, but yet, such is life. I'm glad that um, God's canvas is done in oil and not in watercolor, where all my mistakes are a blur, you know. Well, Grace does that, doesn't it? It paints over them. Yeah. Doesn't doesn't yeah. pretend they weren't there, but it just covers up the shame and embarrassment of them. I think it does. I think it takes it away. You know, I mean, there are things that you know, yeah. We could we could all tell our stories, but um, but I think generally, I think generally speaking. Um, I'm, I'm much more, I'm much more philosophical about life. I think that comes with age and, um, there, you know, there are people, there are people around the world that if I ran into them now, I'm pretty sure I would have to apologize for my behavior. And I have done on occasion, you know, and, and I actually have found people say, what do you mean? <laughs> because I thought it was far worse than it was, but, um, are they just like, did I, you know, I haven't thought about that in 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> but that's what I mean about hanging on to stuff. You need to you just need to let it be. It doesn't do any good. So, um, yeah, that's Horner's life wrapped up in the 60s. And um, at the minute, we're on volume two of Finn. We're doing Finn in the Land Beneath. It's been edited now. Oh, wow. And well, you've, you got, about you've got the bit between your teeth now, huh? Well, I did. I also did a, a, a book for sort of kindergarten kids with my editor called uh, The Minky Whale of Stottlebink, which was about a whale that gets caught up in plastic. It's an environmental book about oh, God's creation. And we're looking for a publisher for that right now. And I started a, another children's book because I finished Finn two um, months ago now. Um, well, I finished the first draft anyway. But I started another one, which I haven't continued with yet, but I will get back to it. Um, based on screw tip letters um, for children. So it's called, it's, all, it's called Fugglebum, the little devil goes to school. And um, it's about this little devil who goes to the uh, Chimerian Academy to learn how to mess up people's lives. 
I don't think we need devils to do that, Sammy. I think I've made a good job of messing up my life at times. <laughs> well, Alexander Alexander Bowie, who's a friend of mine in Salt Lake City, did all the artwork for Faraway Places and Reverend Sam. And um, he did a, an illustration of Fugglebum for me, which is fantastic. I'll send it to you after this. It's fantastic. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm keeping busy. I, I enjoy writing, though. And I think as I get older, I'd be, I'd be quite content to write. Uh, I can make it work, we'll see. Cool. You know what it's like selling books, don't you? No. <laughs> I know what it's like trying to sell books. <laughs> I'm, no, I'm only kidding. Listen, Sammy, I've, I love hanging out with you guys. I love chatting with you. Um, thank you so much for, for coming in and chatting for the, po the podcast. 